Good morning, church family. I am so glad that you've joined us today for online church. My name is Esther Neufeld, and here I am with my husband, Jonathan Neufeld. He is an associate pastor here at Deer Run Church. He leads the senior youth and young adult ministries. I have a privilege to join him in these ministries, and we've been meeting these last few weeks uh, online using Zoom. It definitely has been a blessing to be able to connect with people online through technology, but it obviously is not the same. We miss everyone so much. If we had a date that we had in, in mind that we could meet in person and gather, I would be the person to have a countdown calendar. Be, I would be crossing off each day as it passes by. We have been praying for you and we think of you often. As I have reached out to a few of the youth this last week, asking them how they are doing, I have received a few of the same responses. Good, losing motivation, and tired. I have felt the same way as well, and I'm sure some of you have too. But I am so blessed to have scripture that encourages me and inspires me to make the most of these long weeks that I have. I would like to leave you with a verse in, found in Isaiah 40, 28 to 31. It has been an encouragement to me, and I hope it will encourage you as well. Do you not know, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength, they will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary, and they will walk and not be faint. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you so much for today. We thank you for this warmer weather that we've been blessed with. We thank you for the sunshine. We thank you that you wake us up each morning. Even though we may feel tired and that every day is on repeat, we know that you are with us every day, that you give us energy, that you bless us with our families, with our homes, with even church online, and we thank you for that. We thank you that we can listen to your word, preach to us from the comfort of our homes, and right now we just want to pray for Pastor Jonathan as he preaches to us. We pray that you will open our hearts and ears and that you will speak to us and allow us just to um, praise you and just to have a great day. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. Thank you. Um, so, good morning, everyone, and like my wife Esther mentioned, my name is Jonathan Newfeld, and I'm an associate pastor here at Deer Run Church. And if you're watching for the first time, or if you've been following along with us for the past few months, I want to personally welcome you to our online service. We're getting close to wrapping up our New Testament series with only two sermons left after today, and I don't know about you, but I've really enjoyed this. And my task for today is to introduce us to three different books, James, Hebrews, and 1 Peter's. And at first, 1 Peter, and at first um, it was a daunting task, but I've really enjoyed my time that I've been given to, to read through each book, and I've enjoyed hearing about the other books that we've covered in the series. And while prepping through this series, I was reminded of my summer job working construction um, before working at the church. And there was a man in our congregation, he usually sits in like this section over here, kind of in the back, and uh, he hired me for this job very graciously, knowing that I had no experience with anything related to tools for the most part. And uh, I remember pulling up to the job site, being given a tool belt and being told to climb up this ladder to put up soffit. 
And I'll be completely honest here, I had no idea what Soffit even was at the time. And uh, I had no idea what half of the tools in my tool belt were. Pretty sad, I know. But as I faced my fears of heights and shaky ladders, slowly but surely I figured out things and I learned that every tool in my tool belt had a specific job to be used, that I was used for. And the more I learned to use these tools, the easier the job got and the quality of work also increased. Each of these books is like a tool that you can use in your life. And the more time you take to study these books, the greater our understanding will be as we live as followers of Christ. And I know we are only doing a brief introduction to each of these books, focusing on a couple themes, but I hope something grabs your attention and causes you to have a hunger to dive into God's word for your own, for yourself. So let's start with looking at the book of James. The author of the book of James is none other than the brother of Jesus. This is the same James that we read about in the Gospel of John, chapter 7, verse 5, saying, For even his own brother did not believe in him. Not even Jesus' own brother believed in him while he was alive, but he came to faith after the death and resurrection of Christ. In Acts 15, we read of the account of the council of at Jerusalem coming together to affirm the decision to make the gospel message to the Gentiles, stating in verse 9, saying, He did not discriminate between us or them, for he purified their hearts by faith. This council was said to have met in 49 AD, and with this information in mind, when reading James's letter, there is no mention of Gentiles, meaning James wrote this letter before this meeting and is, he is believed to have written this letter in between 45 and 48 AD. The book of James looks a bit like an Old Testament book of Proverbs, but dressed up in New Testament clothing. So if you're trying to get a picture of what this might look like, it would look like Pastor Ike dressed in my clothing. That's kind of what we're looking like. And uh, Pastor Ike's back there, so I can make this joke. It's totally okay. And throughout this book, there is a focus of practical action in the life of faith, life and faith of believers that reflect the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. And I personally appreciate this book because it gives a lot of practical wisdom as to how to live out faith, placing an emphasis on believers being called to action. That being said, this letter not al- has not always been appreciated in the church. Martin Luther called it a straw epistle because it, it did not sound like Paul's letters as it doesn't include anything concerning salvation by grace. And what Luther meant by straw is based off 1 Corinthians 3, 11 to 13, when Paul says, For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stone, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, the fire that will test the quality of each person's work. Luther isn't stating that this book shouldn't be in the Bible or that it isn't inspired, the inspired word of God, but that faith shouldn't be based on works. So even though this letter focus, letter's focus is primarily on action and not so much on grace of God, that doesn't downplay the importance of this letter to the church today. And now before we dive into some of the themes in the book of James, um, I want to spend some time looking at the exact context of who James is addressing this letter to. 
And James 1, 1 says, James, a servant of God and, the other, and, and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 disciples scattered among the nation's greetings. And we already know that James is speaking to a Jewish society. But in this time, there was a division that was boiling up between the wealthy and the poor. On one hand, you had the Sadducees, a group of upper-class priests who were wealthy. And on the other hand, you had the lower class, the middle class. Um, You had the laborers, the widows, and the orphans. The Sadducees would make their money from trading and farming, and they also welcomed Roman government because it made the environment more stable for business. And later in history, after James' death, this division in society, this tension that James is writing to, actually got worse, which caused a flaring up as the Jewish revolt in 66 AD. So it was with this division in mind that James writes a pastoral letter to a church that needs pastoring. And though theology isn't the focal point of this letter, he writes to believers encouraging them to pursue living a life that reflects Jesus. James clearly taught that faith that lacked works was empty, vain, and useless. And when reading this letter, you can see his passion. You can see his passion in his writing. His his fiery words resemble those of the Old Testament prophets, but much of his teaching comes from Jesus as he closely quotes the Sermon on the Mount numerous times. The theme that I want to focus on from the book of James is the central theme throughout the entire book. And like I mentioned a minute ago, James hammers home the point that those who call themselves believers ought to act like it. It's a call to action. And in James 2, 14 to 17, he writes, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothing and daily food. If one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, What good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Now, don't misunderstand James here. He isn't saying that our deeds will save us or that we have to earn our salvation by works. James is saying that if our faith is just head knowledge and we don't use it for anything else, if we don't use it to lead people to faith, to lead people to Jesus, to serve people, to love people, and to reflect the same grace that Jesus shows us on a daily basis, then what's the point? James gets this idea from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew Matthew chapter 7. And I don't think it's a coincidence that, that Jesus wraps up his sermon with this point. Jesus states in Matthew 7, 24, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The key word there is practice, putting our faith into practice. And on the other hand, if you jump to verse 26, Jesus says, but anyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. Jesus makes it very clear, if you practice his teaching, you will be wise. If you don't practice it, well, I guess you're considered foolish. As followers of Jesus, we are called not only to believe in the message of Jesus, the gospel, but also to put our faith in action and to give us some examples of what this looks like, um, I'll name a few of the topics James speaks on. In James chapter one, yeah, in James chapter one, James speaks on how how our trials can produce perseverance and how we are not to only listen, but also to act. 
In chapter 2, he speaks on favoritism. And if you remember from before, there is a great division between the wealthy and the poor. And we still see a ton of this today, the favoritism in our society. James then goes on to talk about taming the tongue in chapter 3, followed by submitting yourself to God in chapter 4. And then chapter 5 wraps up with a warning of oppression and to be patient in the midst of suffering. And that is just a quick summary of the letter of James, a letter written by the brother of Jesus. Now moving on to the next book, the book of Hebrews. Unlike many other books in the New Testament, the author of Hebrews is unknown. There is much speculation on who the author might be. Some speculate that it could be Paul, but if you read through any of Paul's letters, you'll quickly realize that the literary style of Hebrews does not match up with the Pauline epistles. Other scholars have, saw, have thought that Hebrews was written by Barnabas or Apollos or maybe Luke, but with all this speculation, there is no decisive evidence that can point to one particular author. But regardless of who wrote it, we can still be certain that, the, that Hebrews is the accepted word of Christ, is the accepted word of God, and is the authoritative word. And the date in which this book was written is a bit difficult to determine. In 95 AD, Clement of Rome referred to the book of Hebrews in his writing, which obviously dates the Hebrews before then. As we take a deeper look into the text, we will see that believers were under persecution, but there was no mention of the Roman army destroying the Jerusalem temple, which dates to 70 AD. So it's believed that the best possible option for the date of this writing is mid to late 60s before the temple was destroyed. So let's take a look at the purpose of this letter. The epistle of Hebrews is written to a particular community of Jewish Christians who were suffering for their faith. And because of, the, of this, they were growing weary, thus tempted to give up their faith. The author writes to warn them of the consequences of turning against Jesus and therefore was seeking to motivate them to endure the, in their faith because it will be greatly rewarded upon Christ's return. And since this letter was written to a community of Jewish Christians in mind, um, they would likely have been wrestling with the idea of going back to what they knew, going back to their old way, turning back to Judaism. And I think I can relate to this, and many of us can relate to this, in the fact that when things get tough, when we hit a wall in our faith, the first thing that we tend to do is we want to go back to the normal. We want to go back to what is comfortable, what is easy, what is familiar, and what's safe. And maybe you can relate to this. When things get tough, we revert to what is comfortable. So the author reminds, reminds, the, reminds them of the incomparable, incomparable greatness of Jesus Christ and then gives them encouragement in their faith. And these are the two focal points we'll be looking at from this text. The greatness of Jesus and encouraging in their courageous Christian faith. And looking at the first point, the superiority of Jesus. The author goes to great lengths to play the comparison game, comparing things such as angels, Moses, and sacrifices to Jesus to prove his greatness. Jesus is, Jesus is the perfect word of God. And we see this in Hebrews 1, 1-4, as the author elaborates on this, saying, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and, though, and, and through whom all he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. 
After he provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. So not only was Jesus the perfect word, but he was also the perfect man. Hebrews shows how Jesus lived a perfect life. Even though he had a body, he had passions, he had temptations like our own. And Hebrews 2, 5, 18 touches on the fact that Jesus shares, shared our experiences and understands what we are going through. He also shows us how to turn suffering into spiritual growth. And, th- and though there are many more comparisons and truths of the greatness of Jesus that we can look to um, through the book of Hebrews, the last one I'll touch on is Jesus as the perfect sacrifice. In Hebrews 10, the author speaks to the Old Testament sacrifice system. How the priests day after day would perform their religious duties, but no amount of sacrifice could ever take away their sin. Well, none until Christ took our place on the cross as the ultimate sacrifice. And Hebrews 10, 16, 17 says, This is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my law on their hearts. I will write them on, the, I will write them on their mind. Then he adds, Their sin and, sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. It is with this ultimate sacrifice that our sin was forgiven. And it was with this sacrifice that the new covenant was made with God and his people which means it was paid in full. There, is, there are just a few, those are just a few examples that the author chooses to um, share with the audience of the greatness of Jesus. But he doesn't stop there by trying to inspire these believers, as many are considering walking away from the faith. And later on in Hebrews, the author takes us to the, to the second point that I want to focus on, which is encouraging readers by giving them examples of believers who have gone before them and managed to do amazing things by faith, even while facing opposition. In chapter 11, we read of these individuals and what they have done through faith, with verse 1 saying, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance what we do not see. And a few verses later, the author gives examples of faith. By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. By faith, Noah, was, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, is holy, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. By faith, when Abraham got called to a place he would later receive as an inheritance, he obeyed and went there, even though he did not know where he was going. And by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was unable to bear children because she considered him faithful who made made the promise. There are many more individuals listed in this text who, who regardless of their circumstances, remain steadfast in their faith. And the hope and encouragement the readers are given is that whatever hardship, whatever pains or misfortunes they might endure, it will be worth it because God has something greater in planned for them. It might not be the here and now, but because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, because of this new covenant, this new relationship with Jesus, we will be given new life through him. And there's so much more that I would love to share about in the book of Hebrews, as it is one of the most theological books and one of the most complicated books to understand. But I hope I was able to just pique your interest a little bit with this and give a taste of what the author was writing. And now we're going to look at the last book, which is First Peter. 
The author of this book is none other than the disciple Simon, who had his name changed to Peter. In John 1, 42, Jesus changed Simon's name to Cephas, which is translated to Peter or Rock. Peter was a fisherman and was called to ministry by Jesus himself. But just because his name translated to Rock doesn't mean he was, was strong or solid in his faith. Well, at least not right away. Peter was a man of great strength and courage. He was, best known, he was one of the best known figures in the early church, and he was mentioned over 150 times in the New Testament. He was also famous for his ability to put his foot in his mouth. In numerous occasions throughout the New Testament, we see Peter doing things and saying things that I'm sure he would have loved to take back. In Matthew 14, we have an account of Peter calling out to Jesus to walk on water. And when, when Jesus does this, Peter begins to sink. Jesus tells him that he has little faith and questions why he doubted. In Luke 22, Jesus tells Peter, to de- tells Peter he will deny him three times. And shortly after this, in the same chapter, Peter denies him three times. And in Matthew 16, 21-28, Jesus predicts his death, and Peter has the audacity to say, Never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Little did Peter know that Jesus' death needed to happen and that he would soon be preaching the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, becoming the rock and living up to his name as a leader in the early Christian faith. In Acts 2, 14-41, at Pentecost, Peter preached, his, preached the first Christian sermon and 3,000 people were saved that day. He quickly became a leader in the Jerusalem church. He worked miracles in the name of Jesus, and he boldly defended the faith. His early years as a disciple might have started out a bit shaky, but he eventually became the rock in faith. And this goes to show that just like Peter, your past does not predict your future. The letter of 1 Peter was written early 60 AD, and it was written to, a Jewish and Christian belie- to Jewish and Christian believers in the northern part of Asia Minor. And it touches on many topics and covers on theological grounds, such as the doctrine of God, Christ, Holy Spirit, Scripture, Church, and the last days. So yes, this letter only has five chapters, but it packs a punch and is loaded with content. The two points I'll focus on from this letter are submission and suffering, and I've done my fair share of backyard trampoline wrestling, and I have an older brother, so I know submission. I know what submission means, and I also know what the suffering means that comes along with it. But that submission and suffering is way different than what Peter is talking about in this letter. Peter speaks of submission in numerous occasions and to various different things, such as the government, to masters, to husbands, and to elders. And I'll just speak to two of these because I don't have time to cover all of them. But let's start with looking at authority. Because of the, circ- the weird circumstances we are in right now, there seems to be a ton of division. Should we listen to authority or should we not? Everyone watching from home has their own opinions and their own thoughts on what we should be doing. But it's important for us as Christians to lead by example in a time like this. Peter writes in chapter 2, 13 to 17, saying, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor or to supre- or the supreme authority or to the governor who are sent governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right while writing this nero was the emperor and i'm sure writing these words were not easy for peter but he continues on with verse 15 saying for it is god's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk and foolish people 
Live as free people, but do not use your freedom to cover up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Peter states that respect for the audience, Peter states that respect for and obedience to worldly authority is important because it's an expression of God's authority. In theory, worldly authorities exist to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. But Peter is aware, just as we are aware today, that the possibility of corruption in high places. He even calls Rome Babylon when he's closing off this letter. Yet, just as, being, just as we abstain from fleshy desires and still remain committed to ordinary human society, so we should submit to worldly authority, even though it will pass away under the judgment of God. Pastor Ike and I have been speaking a little bit about this topic, and a question that he mentioned was, why are modern Christians so against the government when early Christians weren't? And that's a question we should be wrestling with, I think, for ourselves. Like, we have to understand that our world is a fallen world, but that doesn't change the attitude we should have for authority. And the attitude that Peter stresses for believers to have is respect. And I know that's not always easy, but being a believer doesn't call us to live an easy life. And I'm sure it wasn't easy for the believers Peter was writing to, especially with Nero being in power. One thing, though, we can know for certain is that we serve a God who is greater than any earthly authority, and that God's perfect plan will come to completion regardless of who is in authority. So we have no need to fear or to worry about what might happen because we know the fight is already won. And as believers, we are called to respect authority and to love on people using the platform we have to be the hands and feet of Jesus. The other submission I want to quickly touch on is in chapter 3, which Peter talks of wives submitting to husbands. And I know I'm fairly young, and I only have one year, eight months, and one day experience of being married, but I will never forget the insight I was given when I was getting marriage counseling. The wisdom I received is, when Peter addresses the wives, that's for the wives to read and to study. And when he addresses the husbands in this part, that's for the husbands to read and study. If both parties the husbands and wives, do their parts in following Peter's instructions that are dedicated to them, it will go a long way in your marriage. Because it's not a matter of pointing out who, who did wrong. It's not a matter of point, pointing fingers at someone else. It's a matter of correcting our own behavior and looking at our own faults instead of our spouses. And the underlining message of what Peter is getting at when speaking of submission is humility. In following the verses after speaking of Speaking to wives and husbands, Peter says in chapter 3, 8, Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Peter is calling believers to follow Christ's example and submit. And when I think about the example of Christ's submission, I immediately look at Philippians 2, where Paul speaks of being imitators of Christ. And Philippians 2, 5-8 reads, In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death at the cross. Now, that to me is the definition of submission. 
And as Peter writes to the believers who are dealing with corrupt government, who have a pagan society around them, Peter has challenged them to submit, not because they want to, not because it's comfortable. He's challenged them to submit for the, for the Lord's sake, just as Christ submitted for our salvation. And I want to wrap up the sermon this morning um, with one last thought, and, and we'll look at this, as Peter's speaking about suffering. Suffering is mentioned a couple times throughout this text, and in chapter 4, 12 to 13, Peter addresses the believer's attitude again, and in a way that is uncommon for anyone when it comes to suffering. Peter writes, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come to you, come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the suffering of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Peter states that the readers of this letter, to the readers of this letter, that they should not be surprised at the trials or hardships that they experience because suffering isn't foreign for Christians. Rather, it lies at the very heart of our existence. And I know, I know that rejoicing and finding joy in suffering is never easy, but suffering is woven into the lives of every human being because we live in the fallen world. The thing that sets believers apart from the rest of the world, though, is the fact that we have something we have someone who conquered death and has given us eternal life through him. So yes, we will suffer in life and we will all suffer in different ways. They won't be the same. But God gave his son to conquer the same thing in our lives, which is sin. And like I said earlier, we know that the battle is already won. So when we are in pain, when we are suffering, we can rejoice because there is a victory that already took place on our behalf. And on that note, that is where I'll wrap up my sermon for today. Thank you for joining us in our online service. And let's just close in a word of prayer. God, I want to thank you so much for today and just the, yeah, just the way that we are still able to connect through this online platform and just the way that you're still working in and through us, Lord. Even though we are not together as a congregation, we are still together through various means, Lord. And I'm so thankful that, that this church does not contain us. This church doesn't, isn't just the, the be-all, end-all. It is the church, the larger church, the universal church that we are a part of, Lord. And thank you so much that we can still preach your name. We can still proclaim the goodness of the gospel, Lord. And that you are still doing amazing things in the lives of those in and around us, Lord. So thank you again for the way that you're working in our lives, Lord, the way that you have found, um, found ways to comfort us in our times of need and support us when we are down and we are discouraged, Lord. And I pray right now that we can just find our strength, find our encouragement, find our hope in you. Amen.